Welcome to Site Selection Matters, where we take a close look at the art and science of site selection decision making. I'm your host, Rick Weddle, president of the Site Selectors Guild. In each episode, we introduce you to the top leaders in the world of corporate site selection and economic development. We speak with members of the Guild, our economic development partners, and corporate decision makers to provide you with deep insight into the best and next practices in our profession. In this episode, we have as our guest, Elias Van Herwarden, Principal with Location Perspectives. In this capacity, Elias assists companies in building and restructuring their business internationally. This includes a wide range of services in location selection, footprint optimization, and globalization, or helping companies successfully adapt their products and services to local markets. Today, Elias will talk with us about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it may actually be redrawing Europe's borders. Join me as we welcome Elias Van Herwarden to Site Selection Matters. Elias, the COVID-19 pandemic has underlined the importance of how and where companies produce their goods and services. Certainly, this has contributed to this ongoing debate we hear about reshoring, or as some would say, right-shoring. Could you take a minute or two and explain just what reshoring is and maybe what it means in a European context? Thank you very much, Rick, uh, for that question. I think the answer to that question depends on who you ask. If you would ask uh, the uh, French government, they actually understand it as bringing the jobs or the work back to France. If you would ask the Bulgarian prime minister, he will say reshoring is, well, bring it back from Asia and bring it to Europe. And by the way, as you do that, bring it to my country. So it's it's a, a political perception, which I think if you talk to business people, you're getting a different answer because for them, reshoring is about shoring closer to market or closer to certain suppliers and providers. So there's a difference between the two, but companies are more thinking about right-shoring, rethinking their structures, than they're literally taking the word reshoring for moving back to their country of origin. Okay, well, let me ask you this. With that different perspective, uh, let's take it from the company's perspective. Does it always work? Is it functionally the right thing to do in this current environment? Let me talk from the European side. It is striking that I think it was back in 2016, the European administration set up a reshoring monitor and it tracked around 700 reshoring projects, meaning intentions to reshore. They closed the project down in uh, early 2019. And there's some interesting information in there because it shows projects that reshored and did well. And there are striking examples of projects that reshored or shored closer to market and failed. And actually, uh, Europe and the U.S. have uh, one in common. It was when Adidas set up its speed factories. Recall in the old days, Adidas was manufacturing its sports shoes and gear in, in China. And it moved then to Vietnam as China became too expensive. And then to stay ahead of the game, Adidas said, we're going to make fully automated factories. We're going to place them near market. One was in the U.S., the other was in Germany. And will allow people to actually assemble or design their sneaker off the Internet and get it delivered within a couple of days, as opposed to getting a standard off-the-shelf thing that took six weeks to travel by ship from China to Europe. So they set up these speed factories. They were quite expensive, very technology-intensive, and they closed them down. Both in the U.S. and in Germany, Adidas, the German company, had to close it down because it wasn't able to find the right technology-savvy workforce. 
and they moved it back to of all places to Vietnam. Now we got to understand that if the speed factories they set up in the Western Hemisphere were like five star versions, when they dismantled them and shipped the whole stuff back to Vietnam, they set up like a three or a four star version. So it wasn't exactly the original thing. But the essence was that their reshoring plan or market shoring plan failed for the lack of technology workers. So that's an interesting example from a corporate perspective of something that didn't work as they planned. I'm sure there's other unintended concepts in that regard. Under the USMCA, for example, it seems to me that maybe while U.S. reshoring initiatives may take a lot of visibility, Mexico might, example, for example, be the prime beneficiary. Would, that, would you think that would be possible? I, I, I think that I don't think it's possible. I know it's possible. I mean, uh, we've all seen the reports by A.T. Kearney and others on the reshoring to the U.S. And I, I think by and large, one can say that the initiatives of the U.S. government have had their successes. But also they led to uh, unwanted buy effects because indeed Mexico benefited a lot of that. Thanks to the USMCA agreement, indeed, many U.S. companies did move stuff closer to market, but they were still allowed, providing certain conditions, to use their lower cost Mexican facilities to service the U.S. markets. But by and large, I think that reshoring initiatives, at least in the U.S., have worked. Here, of course, the, the feeling among politicians is that particularly Central Europe will benefit. And that leads to a lot of debate, even these last couple of months, even pre-COVID. In January, the debate really started in the European Parliament on whether indeed Europe should follow the initiatives of China and uh, the United States to invest more in its industrial manufacturing output. because. The region has been losing market share enormously, particularly as compared to China. But it led to a lot of protests uh, of all type of parties, from right wing to green parties, simply because they were very concerned about what that would do to public deficits. But as you well know, things have changed recently. But overall, reshoring in Europe hasn't been planned as structurally and certainly hasn't had the effects or the impact as it did in uh, North America. Do you see that changing? Do you, do you think this will be a sustained effort for governments to continue in Europe, to continue to try to figure out how to benefit from the reshoring trend? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, uh, a couple of things. I think the, the reshoring trend, it's not something new. I mean, companies, for a variety of reasons, amongst others, IP theft, damage during transportation, rising wage costs in the so-called Asia-Pacific low-cost countries, uh, transportation costs. Many companies figured out that as they were looking at the total cost of ownership, all of a sudden it didn't make sense to optimize wage costs if wage costs only contributed for 15% to cost of goods sold. So companies already started restructuring, realigning, cost reshoring, if you wish, long before uh, any politician put the words in his or her mouth. So it is a trend that's ongoing. And of course, politicians notice that and they want to capitalize on that. They want to create the jobs. Now, what we have seen in Europe here, it's, it's quite an interesting thing, because unlike in the U.S., here we got the European Commission that really sets the absolute rules for state aid. So if you and I would set up a business, uh, say, uh, in, in Bulgaria, and we would apply for a grant, that grant needs to be approved by the European Commission. And they will give half of the money, and the Bulgarian state will need to give the other half. If we get one dime more than that, 
you and I need to return it. So there's a very strict control. And it really benefits, of course, those regions with lower incomes, with uh, lower infrastructure quality. But what we have seen now uh, with all these packages, these bailouts that have been announced, I mean, even Lufthansa, mighty Lufthansa, has received an enormous bailout from the German government. We've also seen that there are these rescue packages that are now permitted. Rescue packages packages that will allow the Bulgarian state to give you and I and our company more than we were initially entitled to. And it could very well be that we opened Pandora's box in doing that. Because typically the divide has been between the Western states that were holding on to their money and the Central European states that really needed to invest in infrastructure with money they didn't have. Now the lid has come off. We have let loose the ingredients of Pandora's box in the sense that more financing funds are available to help companies realize what they need to do in these times of COVID. I'm not sure, given the division in the European Parliament, which is like 50-50 between Central European and Western European countries, I'm not sure that the Central European parliamentarians and representatives will stand clapping if somebody tries to close that lid again. So I think we're in for something that's going to be around for a while. Definitely. So it seems like what was a very focused and regulated package, maybe in the post-COVID-19 recovery mode, has become much more broad, broadly distributed. And you're saying it's going to be hard to get that genie back in the bottle, I suppose. Yeah, that, that would absolutely be mm-hmm. my reading of meetings. Yeah. Now, of course, no guarantee, but uh, and it's not just Central Europe, but even countries like Italy and Spain that are really diehard and longtime members of the European Union, they also demanded rescue packages and they have been granted that. Do not forget how years ago, Portugal, Italy, and Portugal, Ireland, and Greece had to be taken out of receivership by common funds of the European Union from all member states. So they have done this before, and now it's happening again. And it's, it's, it's like um, the, the, the current deputy chief economist of the World Bank has said, look, we're in a war. You spend the money to fight the war, and then after the war is over, you figure out how you're going to pay back the debt. And if a lady of her caliber, I think she comes from MIT, says that, uh, I think many politicians will actually follow that call easily, certainly here in Europe. So so moving beyond money a little bit, obviously money is a big part of it and cash and capital is, is a big part of it. Uh, but moving beyond that just a bit, what do you think U.S. companies or, or companies should be considering as they look to adapt their European operations to this new post-COVID-19 environment? Do you see changes there? It's, it's a bit early to really tell, but listening to what they say, they, they want to go for more automation. Well, don't we all? The problem is that Europe is short of 750,000 IT specialists already this year. It's only going to get worse. So where do we find that talent? Then as they restructure, they will need a smarter, more business-savvy management. There was an Ernst Young report out last week that indicated that 75% of European businesses cannot find the workforce and the management skills that they require. So, so that will be another challenge that U.S. corporations should watch out for. And, and then finally, I mean, we all, definitely within the Guild, we all have our checklists for location criteria. And I recall doing work in APAC a couple of years back, and we, ha- we actually checked 
volcanoes. Like in Manila, there are two volcanoes, and everybody thought we were really out for lunch till one of them erupted like 12 months ago. And there are data out there that talk about country resilience, country resilience to earthquakes, to flooding, and all that kind of stuff. What I'm telling my U.S. clients, look at location resilience as well. Uh, how did the government react to COVID? And, and why did it react in such a way that it did? Did they just ignore scientific evidence? Did they overemphasize it? How quickly did they roll out information, useful information on their web pages? Did they have like webinars to, to nurture their business? How resilient is the local government, the infrastructure, and, 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 and legislation? Has it been adapted? Has it become more flexible? Or did people hang on? I mean, look in Switzerland. In Switzerland, there is a judge that applied the law that forced a company that asked its workforce to work from home, the company was forced to pay the rent of the space the individuals used in their houses. Well, if you have that kind of legislation being applied, then of course, I'm not sure what my clients would think of that in terms of being resilient and of being indeed uh, flexible in periods of stress. So and I think there's another criteria coming into the game for U.S. companies right here in Europe as they restructure their operations. And it's a dimension of location uh, factor that that maybe wasn't considered before when they made the investment. So now they have to look at that. So you're saying that they'll pay attention to this uh, increasingly uh, next time around. I, I think they really should make it their business. I mean, uh, there's so much evidence from around the world how governments reacted uh, and even sometimes changed course. And I don't think there is no perfect reaction to a attack that you of which you do not know your opponent, which was the case in COVID. But how people, how governments reacted, how quickly, what they did and why they did it, if I would set up a plant somewhere in Europe or restructure my operations, bringing back supply lines from, say, Thailand to, let's call it Poland or Lithuania, then I would be looking at how these governments performed. Were they wise? Have they acted wisely and resiliently? That will be my question, certainly, Rick. Elias, uh, in all these things, there's obviously winners and losers as the world changes and evolves and we respond to these things. What do you see the new or maybe emerging locations now that companies uh, should look at as they're restructuring their global supply lines and adapting to this? Like you said before, there, there, there is no clear winner. But say that companies are automating more. They're smarter. They're building in more resilience in their operations. That, to a certain extent, will increase the degrees of freedom where they could look at. And typically, when you look at Europe, I mean, everybody goes after the same usual suspects. But there are countries out there on Europe's border that indeed have the workforce, have quite a resilient government, have a, a good infrastructure. And I, I would encourage everybody doing site selection work or location strategy planning in Europe. Indeed, look at Ukraine. Look at Moldova, uh, look at Georgia, look at Egypt, look at Morocco, because these countries have one thing in common. They are not member of the European Union, but they also share trade agreements with the European Union. They will have lower costs and they will have a lesser war for talent. And if you're looking at distribu distributed structure of operations for resilience, I think it would be wrong just to ignore destinations like that from the start. So there are new destinations popping up, or actually they're popping up on the radar screen. 
they have always been there. Let's shift gears if we can just a minute. We've been talking a lot about uh, investment into Europe or investment into um, the, the countries, the emerging locations in Europe. Should we see or expect to see European investment perhaps into the U.S. again after the dust finally settles on this pandemic? I personally expect to see more. When we met at our conference in Atlanta, which was, I think, very well managed from a safety viewpoint, but indeed there were positive tones about FDI increasing into the United States, about European FDI increasing. I mean, we had a number of European EDOs attending uh, the Site Selectors Guild conferences for over the years now, and the number is increasing. So, so obviously there, there is a stronger connection we got more guild members than ever working on Europe source projects that go into the US. And that was before the call for resilience that came with COVID-19. I think that now that companies want to keep their supply lines shorter and closer to market, what we already saw as an uptake of Europe outbound investment into the United States, that should only increase across all sectors. And like we discussed uh, in Atlanta, I mean, um, even on the US side, the usual suspects pick up a lot, but there are a lot of states out there that have everything it takes to actually get more of that foreign investment from Europe into their, uh, within their state boundaries. Absolutely, no doubt about it. Let me throw you a bit of a curve now, Elias. We've been talking about countries and governments and regions and companies and the large macro level. Let's um, bring it home a little bit. Talk to me just a bit, if you will, about how has this pandemic uh, affected you as a site locator or a site selector in your just your daily life? Uh, are you when and when will you be able to travel internationally again to get back to business? Wow, that's uh, that's not one question. <laughs> <laughs> um, how has it uh, affected? In, in two ways, really. I mean. Um, we never saw as many questions and calls for just bouncing off ideas arriving on our desks uh, ever, ever. I, I mean, it's like five a week, really. And, and it's from all over. It's uh, predominantly corporates, but a lot of the EDOs here in Europe are also pulling out their hairs to figure out what, what do, should they be doing next. So that's good. But uh, the flip side is, of course, uh, we all read the PwC survey, which told us that CFOs are really holding on to their cash. So the projects that were continue, and they're picking up speed again now that the uh, lockdowns are being dismantled. But the inflow of new projects uh, is, is calm. calm. They come in, they trickle in, but uh, not at the same exponential growth rate as we've seen in the inquiry. So... But, but it's okay. I think this is absolutely a good time to be in the location strategy business. The interest comes, I mean, I just had a call with people from Cush Wake, uh, and everybody's just exploring each other's minds, helping each other to, to serve as clients. So I think that's a good thing. For me personally, uh, going international, well, the traveling to the south of France, but that's for personal reasons just next. But I could show you a picture of Brussels Airport uh, in the departure lounge, and all flights are canceled. They'll be picking up uh, flights again early next week as of Monday. But still, we created kind of bubbles. Countries created bubbles. Uh, the Baltic, three Baltic countries, that was a bubble. There was a bubble between Austria and Greece. A bubble is an area within which the governments of the countries concerned have agreed, okay, you can come and visit me, I can go and visit you. 
and it's taken a lot of work at European Union level to create a bigger European Union bubble, uh, which allows indeed we can travel to, to France and, and go back the same day. If I would go to London tomorrow, which I can do by train, uh, I will need to stay two weeks in quarantine in London before I actually can have my business meeting. So I'm not exactly planning to go to London anytime soon. So travel is still hampered. It is opening up. But uh, yeah, the amazing thing is, um, I mean, I haven't used my phone in, I think, three weeks. I'm using Zoom all the time. And what I really like about it, a lot of people are using Zoom or likewise uh, technologies like Uber Conference to stay in touch, to establish contacts, and people have become very relaxed and used to it. And I, I think that's a, a major benefit because uh, though I enjoy traveling, uh, I mean, it, it's just a plane, a taxi, and an office, right? Right, right, right. Well, it's made a lot of changes. A lot of things are different, and we're all uh, Zooming yeah. a lot more than we uh, ever thought we would. Elias, you've really given us a lot to think about. What a great conversation this has been today, but that's really all the time we have. So let me say thanks to Elias Van Herwarden with Location Perspectives for taking time today to talk with us about reshoring or maybe right-shoring and how the pandemic is affecting all of us in this episode of Site Selection Matters. It's been a real pleasure, Rick, as usual, to have a convo with you and wishing you all the best. Speak soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Site Selection Matters. And a special thanks to Elias Van Herwarden for helping us get inside and better understand the impact that COVID-19 is having on business facilities and operations in Europe and around the world. What an informative discussion and one that leaves us with a lot to think about. This podcast represents my views and the views of my guests, and they do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Site Selectors Guild or its members. Again, I'm Rick Weddle, president of the Site Selectors Guild. We hope you will subscribe to the Site Selection Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you some great discussions in the year ahead. Until next time, good day.